Know your rights. You have the right to free speech as long as you are not dumb enough to actually try it. Join me when I ask VT's Dr. Kevin Barrett about the rights of man, common sense, democracy, transparency, and regaining our footing when it comes to our freedom in this unfree world. Right here, right now, on VT Radio. Let's go. With host Johnny Punish. And we're on VT Radio with Dr. Kevin Barrett. This is 2023, our first conversation, Kevin. How are you doing today? Doing great, drinking pine needle tea out of a VT cup. Ah, fantastic. I got my uh, cheap coffee, but a good cup, though. I got my VT cup with my VT radio on the back, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Finally got pretty it. Pretty snazzy. Yeah, thank right. you. Thank you. Yeah, I was happy to get it. Um, of course, all members get it. If you joined VT, you get a free cup. It's just our way of saying thanks to you for supporting VT all these years. We've been around 18 years online, so just our way of saying thanks. But hey, Kevin, let's get right into it. Um, Gosh, I just got uh, finished with your Cat McGuire interview uh, that you did uh, about transparency, Putin conspiracy theorist, um, uh, all those things. And I found it super fascinating because right now, I don't know if you, you probably heard about this, but uh, currently right now, Brazil is uh, being attacked or not attacked. Uh, uh, they're having an issue there with their democracy. Their capital was uh, uh, addressed by the people. Um, that happened, I think it was overnight. So democracy is happening right now all over the place. And before we get started, I, I want to start by saying this. Um, today, uh, on this day in 19, uh, excuse me, in 1776, Thomas Paine published uh, his Common Sense pamphlet, which gave rise to the American idea that we could be an independent country. It turned the, a colonial squabble into a revolution. And it was that that started uh, uh, us getting away from, you know, uh, of this monarchy this this total secret empire and trying to create a better place of religious freedom and liberty but you know it hasn't all worked out but it's 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 been relatively good but right now we got a secret u.s empire going on and there's a battle for true democracy so i thought let's start with that can you speak to that you know the battle for true democracy around the world brazil even in the united states and around the world what do you think yeah well you know, I uh, I respect Thomas Paine as a great rabble rouser, and you know I kind of like to follow in the tradition of the great rabble rousers in certain respects. Um, as far as the struggle for democracy and uh, against democracy, political theory, and so on and so forth, who's really democratic here? Is it the people who you know who stormed the Capitol on January sixth who were pro democracy because they thought that there's a problem with American elections, which actually there is although maybe 2020 wasn't the worst of the years. 20, 2004 was probably a lot worse than 2020. But in any case, uh, it's it's sometimes hard to tell like who's, who are really the pro-democracy people and who are the anti-democracy people. Our mainstream media tells us that the J6 protesters are the anti-democracy people, the fascists and the authoritarians. They want a Trump strongman regime with uh, no rule of law and no more constitution. And then, of course, the J6 protesters and their supporters say it's the opposite. They say we have an authoritarian deep state already and that the people elected Trump and he was denied his election by these elites. So they say they're the pro-democracy people. And likewise, in Brazil, you have uh, you know Lula and Bolsonaro. The left-wing supporters of Lula think that 
he's the pro-democracy guy and they're the democracy forces. They're the people power people who have the support of a lot of ordinary poor working people whose lives got better under uh, left-winger Lula. And then the, the Bolsonaro people, uh, they think they're the pro-democracy people, or a lot of them do anyway. You know, they uh, believe that the you know there were election problems in Lula's victory and so on and so forth. So it's it's a lot like the J six issue, and you know, from my perspective, John, I think that the uh, the whole issue of uh, democracy is is a little you know the, the whole notion of democracy is is pretty questionable if we think of it as you know, having a strong central state that's then somehow controlled by the people. And how do the people control it? Well, we're told that we have representative democracy. We vote for representatives who supposedly represent us. But when you have a limited number of choices to vote for, probably the people that you're voting for don't really agree with you on an awful lot of issues. Like, in, yeah, let's say that there are, let's say you're you know, you're actually paying attention to what's going on in the world, unlike 99 out of 100 people. And so you have an opinion on, you know, 200 issues, let's say, maybe 2,000. Let's just say 200, make it simple. And uh, what are the odds that one of these two major party candidates that you're supposed to be voting for is going to actually line up with you perfectly or even closely at all on all 200 of those issues, or even recognize most of them as even issues, right? So, the uh, the whole notion of representative democracy strikes me as pretty dubious. If we wanted to go to real democracy or having the people enact the laws directly, uh, that would be interesting. Uh, but when we look at how it's actually worked out in places like California and other places that have had all of these sort of referenda, uh, it doesn't. It ends up not being very democratic. The wealthy, powerful, special interests end up purchasing the media power to brainwash the people and put their special interests supporting stuff on the ballot. I mean, there are exceptions, but it really isn't very particularly democratic. The people are not ruling. So frankly, I think, John, that any big polity, a huge country or empire or what have you, uh, there's no way that a big centralized entity can really be ruled by its people. I mean, even if it were, each individual would only be one out of millions and millions and millions. And so their voice would mean essentially nothing anyway. So if, if you're living in a huge, big society that actually is ruled by the people, which none of them actually are, your voice is still basically meaningless. <laughs> yes, you're only one out of, out of a huge number. So, so the whole concept of democracy strikes me as uh, you know, it's it's a it's an ideal, it's a public myth. It's nice it, in some ways. It it is good that people believe in it because it can kind of curtail some of the worst abuses, and and it can you know people can have some degree of a voice. They're trained that they're supposed to have a voice, and then that becomes to some extent a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. But you know, there's there's nothing remotely like real democracy that's ex ever existed anywhere except maybe in a, right. You know, Actually, a I was in like, uh, I was in Greece last year at the Acropolis in Athens, and uh, we were up there discussing democracy. And, uh, of course, over there, that democracy wasn't a direct democracy. It was, in fact, I don't know if it was Aristotle or Socrates, I think it was one of them said, um, it's better to be ruled, to, to let the people who are informed vote. In other words, the elites, the, the landowners who actually, was, was it Plato? Excuse me. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, Plato, that was Plato's they, perspective. They, yeah. they're, there yeah. should be the people that vote. And because uninformed voters make really dumb decisions, Anderson. right? I mean, they, they can be brainwashed easily. So what do you think about that perspective of democracy? Well, you know, I actually 
kind of lean towards agreeing with that classical perspective in the, the idea that what you want in in rule, if you want to have in that, number one, assuming that you want to be ruled, you want to have some central authority that's governing you. And I guess we all have to have a little bit of that to some extent. Then you, what you really want is not so much a democratic regime uh, for all the reasons that I mentioned, but you want a, a virtuous regime. And that's what that was the classical perspective of Plato and Aristotle, and they thought that you could get a virtuous regime by having the most virtuous people rule. And then they assumed that that would be kind of a hereditary elite class. And I'm a little skeptical about that because I think that the kind of people who rise to the level of becoming elites and including hereditary elites are psychopaths, or they tend to be. So if, if you, you know, so Plato and Aristotle with their notion of this natural elite that would have virtue and that should be allowed to rule, what they're really, and it ends up being, is, is a psychopathic elite ruling. So the trouble is, how, how do you get around this problem of the, the vicious rather than the virtuous ruling? Because the vicious are the people who want to rule. They're the power-hungry people. They're the, they're the, the greed heads and the power mongers. And so they scratch and claw their way to the top by any means necessary. And so you end up with a pathocracy, a rule by psychopaths. And I think that's what we've tended to have more often than not throughout much of human history, ever since we stopped being these small, little, isolated tribes where often the virtuous did rule because you know everybody, you know, and you know who's virtuous. And, and the psychopath is only going to get so far before the people find a way to get him, you know, kill him or get him kicked out of the tribe. And then they find a virtuous uh, chief to rule them. And so I, I think when you have these larger polities, it, it's always tended to be ruled by psychopaths. And so the eternal question since Plato and Aristotle is how do you actually get virtuous rule rather than rule by psychopaths? You know, democracy ends up with rule by psychopaths too, whether they're, you know, populist, uh, you know, people, you know, people pleasing psychopaths, you know, people like Trump and these other very charismatic types, or, you know, whether they're the deep state managers in the background, manipulating things from behind the scenes, you still end up with psychopaths ruling. And so, so how do, how do we beat that? My, you know, looking at history, I, I think that the institutions that have balanced the psychopathy of power the best have been religious institutions. And of course, this isn't a very popular view today, but I think it's true. Uh, I've had Peter Simpson, the philosopher on my show, talking about this, how in, in Europe's past, uh, Christian institutions actually did balance the psychopathy of the, the non-religious part of the power structure, which is why even Karl Marx, who hated religion and wanted to get rid of it, admitted that you know, religion is not only the opiate of the people, but it's also the heart of a heartless world. And these are the only institutions with any power that have ever had any heart, any spirituality, have tended to be these religious institutions. So I think we should, you know, the Christian world, if it were still Christian, should go back to having these parallel religious institutions, like the Russian Orthodox Church is becoming again, which is good, that can then provide a sort of a counterbalance against the psychopathy of political power. And that's what Iran has. And that's great. That's why Iran is the one country in the world that tells 9-11 truth. And they don't care what's going to happen to them if they do that. They oppose Zionist genocide. They don't care what's going to happen to them if they do that because they're doing what's right, what God wants them to do. 
Uh, and so having that element of uh, religious power in Iran to balance the natural psychopathy of secular power makes Iran uh, one of the most virtuously ruled countries today. And of course, it's a very unpopular view because the, frankly, I think, satanic uh, uh, elements in society, and it's a lot of most people because we're brainwashed by satanic psychopaths. And so they bombard us with propaganda, you know, telling us how terrible these mullahs are and so on and so forth. It's all lies and bullshit. And so Thomas Paine actually, John, I think, even though I love his rabble-rousing qualities and try to seek to emulate them, he was on the wrong side of history. He was part of this movement that was eliminating okay, the religious Fast forward to American democracy. Today, uh, we have the J6 committee uh, hiding documents or hiding the evidence for 50 freaking years. We're, we're back to the JFK thing again. I mean, where are we in America, the secret empire? How are we going to ever have something that right. the people can grab onto? <laughs> Frankly, I have no idea. You know, I... I've kind of given up almost in a way. After you know, after 9-11, I thought, well, you know, I grew up in the shadow of the JFK assassination in, in Vietnam and this horrific satanic empire. You know, I realized I was living in the belly of the beast starting in high school. And so I kind of more or less made my peace with being out, an outsider, a little bit of a guerrilla warrior against it, a little bit. But, you know, I, I didn't have any illusions I could really do that much about it. So I just tried to kind of live my life. And, and follow the best values I could find. But then when 9-11 happened, and then I woke up to what really was at stake there a couple of years later, I thought, well, you know, this is so huge. The brainwashing power of that false flag event was so massive that if we expose the truth about it, maybe that'll slap people awake. <laughs> so I devoted myself to that issue. And yeah, we slapped a lot of people awake. And, and you know, people are starting to wake up a little bit more. I still have a little bit of hope that maybe that mass awakening will morph into, you know, something better than it has so far. But how that would work, maybe, you know, we've had these great religious awakenings in the past. And the thing about the, you know, great religious awakening is it's based on transcendental values that tell, you know, that give people a reason to be good. If you don't have those transcendental values, you have no reason to be good. And so you end up sort of fooling yourself, pursuing your lower nature, you know, really enjoying the bestial vices and things like that, living for your ego, all that sort of stuff. And then if you're doing that, you're in no position to really make anything better, even if you see through how evil the rulers are. So the only way that you're going to make anything better is if you have a really strong uh, reason to, you know, kind of a religious energy motivating you to do it and to be good, to really try to be good. And that's there have been these religious awakenings, the great awakenings in American history. Maybe there'll be another one. I don't know what it'll be. You know, I'm Muslim and I, I, don't really see Islam sweeping America and fixing things. It'd be nice. It could, well, but I, it doesn't look likely. Uh, but we just I just saw I, the I issue of Damar Hamlin for the Buffalo now. Bills, as you discussed with Kat McGuire on your fantastic show, um, that people were praying more for him. And we see that young people now are praying in the Christian way, right? The Christian value way, right? So yeah. is America becoming more christian than it was last week or last year or 10 years ago is that a small awakening and how do we do that if that's where it's going how do we do that without the white supremacy christian nationalism without the racist christian nationalism without that nonsense because america is a diverse country of many colors and many peoples and, and many creeds as well um so tell me what you think about that yeah those are really good questions um 
Yeah, it was interesting. The people praying for Damar Hamlin, that's, you know, I think the polls tell us that people have become less religious in the United States. You know, there's a very slow, steady decline in religiosity, especially since 9-11, which I believe was partly designed to uh, attack religion basically to say that, you know, religious people are psychopathic uh, killers and, and uh, you know, suicidal terrorists and so on and so forth. Uh, and of course, the people that did this are, are atheists, maybe some are even Satanists, I don't know. And sometimes I think Satanists are just sort of, you know, atheists with uh, a better, you know, juicier mythology. But in any case, uh, yeah, there's been this sort of war on traditional religion for quite some time. And I think there's a backlash against it now. So the young people now, some of them uh, are waking up to this. You know, the young people on the conservative political side, uh, many of them are becoming more Christian. Uh, E. Michael Jones, who's also a co-host on False Flag Weekly News, like Kat McGuire, uh, he's spent, he's got a big following of young people. Uh, He's Catholic. And so there's already a bit of a Christian religious awakening uh, among red-pilled people, uh, mostly on sort of the right, side of the political spectrum. And maybe that could morph into something. At this point, it's still a minority backlash against this larger trend towards uh, people, you know, being um, atheists, uh, LGBTQ loving, super secularized, yada, 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 that they're told to be in the universities, especially the ones that get to the universities. They're sort of taught that they will be of higher status if they accept that ideology and drop any religion. And then I think uh, there's that that counter movement against that, a sort of rebellion against that. So today we have sort of a a Christian and religious counterculture that's in some ways parallel to the left-wing counterculture that I grew up with back in in the 1970s when the 60s finally came to Wisconsin. I was growing up then. Were you a flower power guy or what were you you back then? Yeah, I was, I was, I was kind of a, a hippie. Uh, like I said, I discovered the JFK problem when I was maybe 16 or something in, in high school, like mid seventies. And then I really had no truck with a society that would be ruled by people like that and, and let them get away with it. So I kind of became something between a, a, a hippie peacenik and Abby Hoffman loving uh, outlaw with a dangerous sense of humor and yeah, somewhat dangerous lifestyle at certain points. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but so that, yeah, there, there was a counterculture at that time where a lot of us really had a huge problem with the establishment way of seeing things. And at that time, the establishment was pro-religious. They, you know, the establishment hated godless communism. That was our big enemy. And so today it's flipped. And the new counterculture is these conservative younger people. Now, like you said, some of them, are white nationalists, some of them are racists, some, and some of them are just kind of provocateurs and comedians in the guise of being, you know, racist, white nationalist Nazis. And they're actually, what they're really doing is kind of dark comedy. Uh, and like the, that, uh, you know, Daily Stormer guy, Andrew Anglin, I see him as primarily a comedian. And he's, he said that a few times himself, but, but a, a comedian with some serious things to say as well. And I, I actually kind of respect that. In a way, Andrew England is like the Abby Hoffman of this era. Uh, but in terms of the, the serious racism, the real racism, you know, people who would like to live in a huge country with only one race, which is kind of, I think that's ridiculous, especially in the United States. Uh, so I think the religious element actually is in conflict with the racist element. If you look at that 
counterculture of these young kind of, you know, what do you call them? The new right conservatives. They, uh, they, they don't really agree on religion. On one side, you have a bunch of sort of, you know, atheists, Satanists, and pagans uh, who also take, are usually the racists. And then on the other side, you have the Christians who are not racist or even anti-racist. Now, yeah, there are some sort of Christian nationalists who are sort of white nationalists, but for the most part, these are two separable tendencies. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, and, uh, I also uh, want to talk to you about the issue. Uh, I know you're working on the run. Is it an interview you're working on or a debate? Tell us more about that and about the, the vaccine thing. And so explain that a little bit more. Yeah, there's been this huge debate about vaccines in general and COVID vaccines, uh, mRNA vaccines in particular. And I've been following this since way back. Uh, and I've, be, I've been a vaccine skeptic from way back. And it's been obvious to me since the 1990s that the vaccine regimen that they push on everybody has a lot of dangers. It's very likely uh, producing, uh, it's, it's a, probably a major factor behind this huge rise in chronic diseases, and, you know, with autism being kind of the most obvious, but lo there are lots more, you know, these kinds of uh, immune system problems. So I've been following that for a long time. And so when the COVID vaccines came out, I was pretty much the last guy who was going to volunteer for that. I, I volunteered to be in the control group on that particular experiment. Uh, and so I've been following this vaccine debate in the alternative media which tends to be very anti-vax. And of course, Veterans Today was under Jim Dean and especially Gordon Duff was very pro-vax and quite ruthlessly, you know, a mocking anti-vaxxers for quite some time. And I think that coincided with a decline in our readership, uh, probably because most of the people that read VT tend to be skeptical of what the power structure says. And when it says to line up and take your experimental vaccines, most of those people are, are not in a huge hurry to do that. So anyway, I've been following the research on vaccines uh, with a focus on the, on the best vaccine skeptics, which would you know include people like, uh, well, Steve Kirsch, Alex Berenson, um, and a, a whole number of others, uh, uh, Merrill Nass, of course. And uh, it's been, it's very clear that these mRNA vaccines are not nearly as effective as they were sold to be. They wear off pretty quickly. First dose wears off in six months, and first booster wears off in three months. Then the next booster starts wearing off in two months. And so you're getting diminished, and, and each one is a little bit less effective. In fact, the last boosters are a lot less effective. So you're getting less bang for your buck. Uh, you're getting, facing massive diminishing returns, and it looks like your immune system is being uh, damaged as this happens. And by the time you've had a bunch of boosters, you're actually more likely to get COVID. Now, it's not clear that you're more likely to die or be hospitalized, but you're definitely more likely to get it. The latest studies are showing that there's this almost linear relationship between the number of boosters you get and how likely you are to catch COVID. You're twice, if you had two boosters, you're twice as likely to catch COVID as, as if you haven't. If you had three boosters, you're three times as likely. So what's happening is that this original antigenic sin, you know, you get imprinted with the first version of the spike protein that your body's manufacturing antibodies against. And it always is biased towards that. And it's never going to be as good at, at manufacturing any other kinds of antibodies. And so you essentially training your immune system to go after legacy COVID or whatever it is you're getting vaccinated against. And the virus keeps mutating, comes back in a different form. And now your immune system is still trying 
to fight the older form and it can't do as well against the new form as if you hadn't been vaccinated. So anyway, it's obvious that the vaccines have been a failure. Uh, but the question of how dangerous they are, how many people are they killing, how many disabilities are they causing, that's hotly debatable. And there's a huge statistical battle going on. And on one hand, you know, we have all of these folks like Steve Kirsch and his team who are arguing that there have been at least a few hundred thousand vaccine deaths in the United States. And others like Mark Crispin Miller say that, you know, every time some young person dies suddenly, it's probably from the vaccine. So that's, and, you know, DeMar Hamlin keeling over on the football field right at the height of this is just sort of underlines it. And then on the other side, you have uh, the establishment saying, no, no, nothing to see here. There's no evidence, blah, blah, blah. But they don't seem to be, they don't have their eyes open. If, you know, if there were evidence, they wouldn't look at it. So Ron Unz, who's, you know. Why can't we, why can't we discuss it at least? Because they're trying to, they're trying to shut down the conversation. That's the problem. Uh, I don't think we get to the truth. I mean, one of the things about VT and, and what you do as well, what we all do is we're trying to find the truth. And so why can't we discuss things without being shut down on Facebook, on Twitter, on this, on that? No, we can't discuss that. I mean, NFL players can't even discuss the vaccine without being fired, you know, in a sense. I mean, they made fun of Aaron Rodgers for bringing it up. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm pro or against because, to be honest, I'm not a scientist and I don't I don't know all the answers, okay? But I am trying to seek the truth. So I want to know how do we get to a place where we can at least discuss this? Yeah, right. That That's a sign that there's a problem. When when they started silencing everybody, they silenced these hundreds and hundreds of dissident doctors and scientists. Uh, it makes you ask why. I mean, if if their position is is so defensible, why do they want to silence the opposition? And so that's why I'm looking forward to seeing Ron Unz debate Steve Kirsch or his team, because Ron has done a statistical argument that purports to show that re the vaccine can't have killed uh, this kind of huge number of people that Steve think thinks it did. Like Ron admits that, yeah, it's, it's very likely killed some people. It's well, it certainly killed some people. And it, he, he thinks it's likely that it's killed thousands and perhaps into the low tens of thousands, whereas uh, the but then he he thinks that the uh, the virus itself has killed well over a million, which is probably true, and that so Steve Kirsch on the other hand thinks that the uh, vaccines have killed hundreds of thousands, and uh, so there's a basically it's an argument about you know where where do you draw the line you know what are uh, in terms of the risks versus benefits, the costs versus benefits of these vaccines, you know, that kind of debate, that free open debate with the best possible evidence uh, is really what you want. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to Ron defending his interpretation, which is based on the fact that when he looks at these working age deaths, we've seen a 30 to 40% rise in working age deaths, people from say 20 to in their fifties, uh, since it turns out, Ron says, uh, since 2020, now, the way it's been presented by the anti-vax people in the alternative media is that this all began with the vaccines. But Ron looked at the stats and said, no, it didn't. It actually began with COVID in 2020. And it didn't go up at all when the vaccines came in. And then if you look at other countries, he says you find the same pattern. You don't see working age deaths going up when the vaccines come in. And he does notice Ron's biggest discovery that shocked him the most was that working age deaths despite being up 30 to 40% in the US, they're actually down. They're lower than normal in several European countries. Uh, France is one of them. And uh, he thinks perhaps that's because the lockdowns prevented 
auto accidents and other things that typically would cause these very, very rare deaths of young working age people. If you look at who dies, it's almost all old people. And so it's very rare that the younger people would ever die. Uh, and, and so even a 30% rise in working age deaths is really not very many deaths because there were hardly any before. And now there's just a little, you know, 30% more or 40% more than that. Anyway, Ron says that everywhere he looks, uh, there's just no evidence that when vaccination starts, you see any problems emerging, you know, right after that. Now, Steve Kirsch has argued, I think, and, and uh, others have argued that the, it looks like the peak of, of deaths from the vaccine happens six months after vaccination. So that might be a factor to consider. And then I also pointed out to Ron that the death rate should have gone way down in 2021 based on Omicron and theoretically these vaccines, right? You would think that there should be a huge, there's a huge rise in the death rate in 2020, which there makes sense. And then in 2021, and especially 2022, that death rate should have gone way down because all of the low hanging fruit, the sick vulnerable type people would have been killed off. Those people would have died otherwise in 2021 or 2022, but COVID knocked them off in 2020. So the death rate then should have precipitously declined and it didn't, it stayed very, very high. And that includes the, the working age death rate. So Ron admitted that that yeah, that's, that's, you know, it's possible. Um, but then he looks at all these other countries and says, still, everywhere you look, you can't really find uh, a, a chronological link between mass vaccination rollout and then rises in death rates. So therefore, he says, there just can't be that many people being killed by vaccines. Now, others argue the opposite. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to host this debate in such a way that we can focus on the most pertinent uh, issues, the best statistics, and figure out who's closer to the truth. Now, tell our VT listeners and readers, uh, when is this going to happen, and when can we find this? Because we're all going to be watching. Well, uh, keep an eye on my Substack, which is kevinbarrett.substack.com. And I did just send an invitation to Steve Kirsch, because Ron's art, his, his part two article came out just today. This is the article in which he discovers that the countries that actually have lower working age death rates since COVID are the countries almost almost always with low obesity and that the uh, countries with the high working age death rates since COVID are the high obesity countries. So that that's becomes the theme of his second article. But yeah, so I just sent out the invitation to Steve Kirsch pointing out that Ron is now willing to debate him. Steve Kirsch has been desperately trying to find anybody to debate him on this for ages. And he's been offering money and stuff. He's been offering, you know, he's a, he's a wealthy self, self-made tech entrepreneur. He's probably not going to give me any, uh, <laughs> but he's been, he's been offering to like put up money and then have some sort of panel of experts decide who wins the debate and whoever wins gets the money. So I don't know if Ron's going to go for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he just he wants people to have, uh, you know, to 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 have uh, the, the you know what, what what's what's the uh, phrase for that uh, skin in the game, right? You know to make them really, uh, you know, uh, well, also I think, I think he, he's challenging people on the other side. If you guys really think these vaccines are so safe, put up some money behind what you say you believe. <laughs> yeah. So Steve Kirsch, and I, I admire this part of him. He's a very smart guy. Uh, he like you and me, you know, believes that the way that we find out the truth is through free, fearless debate, which the, you know, the most best informed people on the different sides are heard. And then, we should have a basis for making up our own mind. And that makes sense to me. So yeah, I hope uh, Ron and Steve will debate. 
In fact, I want to say this uh, about VT. Uh, I believe that about VT. I, I, just for the record, I, I don't agree with probably 50% of the things on VT, but that's the way it should be. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, I make sure that every voice is heard. I don't want to shut down any voices, um, even if I disagree with that position at all. It's not that I disagree with the person. I disagree with some positions. That's all. Uh, you think uh, this is better uh, gray. I think it's better yellow, whatever the color is. And we can discuss that and, and work through that process. But I want to make sure it stays open because I want to be part of that solution of open conversation. I don't want to be the censor. I don't want to be part of anything like that where, you know, the J6 committee is, sorry, uh, nothing to see here. Call us in 50 years. I mean, come on, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It really no, that, that's a great anyway. thing about VT. Yeah, yeah. VT has had a lot of uh, diversity of voices, uh, and and the previous management, you know, for it's uh, a couple of foibles and you know issues. Uh, I guess everybody has some issues with them, uh, but they did a pretty good job overall of protecting uh, free speech or uh, you know letting us say what we want. And I would get annoyed when Gordon would barge in and put uh, what I thought were kind of stupid prefaces in front of my articles that he disagreed with, but that's better than not letting me post them. So, yeah, and, and now those guys retired and uh, we're kind of running it as a team and letting people uh, say what they have to say, even if we don't agree. Exactly. On, on that note, Kevin, I want to say thank you for appearing on VT Radio. Look forward to that uh, Ron Unz uh, debate on the Vax. Uh, I'm excited about it. I really want to see it. So I'll be uh, making sure everybody knows about it. And uh, on that note, I want to say thanks for everything and have a great weekend. Uh, excuse me, great week. It's 2023, we're going to have a great year this year. So let's get it on, okay? Sounds like a plan, Johnny. Okay, take take care. care. See you next time. If you enjoyed this presentation, hit the like button now. Also, share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. VT approves this message.